Hello and welcome to the Coast to Coast College Admissions Podcast. Each week, we talk about different college admissions topics and answer those tough questions you may be dealing with concerning getting into the college of your choice. We know how difficult this process can be, so each week, we try and make it easier to navigate. Now, here's your host, Anna Wren and Mark Huffer. Greetings and welcome to the Coast to Coast College Admissions Podcast. My name is Mark Hofer, and I am joined by my partner in podcastness, Anna Ren. And we are going to switch it up a little bit today because we have an outstanding guest that we're really excited about. Todd Fabian is an educational consultant here in Seattle. And while Anna and I focus on high school students that are headed to college, uh, Todd focuses on one very specialized area, and he basically works with college students who are headed to medical school. And that, I found in uh, hearing a presentation from Todd, is a very unique and a very specialized area, but it's very complex. And so we have asked him to come on, and we wanted to ask him some questions about what he does. And so most of our listeners know that Anna and I do uh, work with college students, basically with high school students going to college, but Todd's work is, is specialized enough. We wanted to speak specifically about the work he does. So greetings, Todd. Hello, thanks for having me today. Welcome, welcome. One quick question, and just to kind of frame what you do and how, since the podcast listeners that we have know what we do, could you briefly describe uh, the work you do with college students as they're looking towards medical school? Sure. So my primary body of work is working with students who are interested in advanced degrees in the health sciences. So probably two thirds of my work is with medical school applicants, but I also work with, you know, speech therapy or physical therapy or uh, physician assistants or, or, or nursing applicants. So um, the health sciences are a unique beast in that they are incredibly competitive and require a certain type of preparation that not all intellectual programs necessarily require. So I've developed a lot of expertise over time in how to equip uh, applicants in the health sciences to be successful with their applications. Very good. So one of the things when we hear from our perspective, we hear a lot of the horror stories that, uh, you know, medical school is incredibly competitive, even more so than getting into college. And we get to hear about how difficult it is to get in but some of the reasons why students are actually turned down for undisclosed reasons. Um, but a lot of those things, we don't know really what reality is. And since you work in it on a daily basis, can you tell us, you know, some of the things that a qualified student, and there again, you can define qualified, a qualified college student looking to get to medical school, can you tell us some of the things that, uh, you know, uh, has an influence on, on the rate of acceptance for them uh, when they're looking at schools. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I'll start out with the statistic that is, is kind of the most distressing and is the hardest part about my job to deliver, which is that in any given year, of all of the people who apply to medical school, only 40% of them will matriculate into any program. So unlike college, where if you apply to enough schools and they're in your range, you're very likely to be accepted as an undergraduate more than half of very qualified applicants to medical school do not matriculate into a program at all. 
And when they're qualified, we're talking about people who are applying to 20 to 30 schools. Yeah. So it's, um, the statistics are, are pretty gruesome, but that's not to say that, you know, interested applicants should just be wholesale deterred in this process. There's a lot of steps that can be taken starting when they're in high school, starting when they're thinking about this process that can greatly increase the chances of success. And I know as our conversation proceeds here today, we'll talk about some of those things. And so I would start by saying that everyone needs to think about this application process in a very holistic sense. All applicants are much more than their standardized test scores and their grade point averages. They are a collection of activities and experiences and they bring letters of reference to the process as well. And so the job really is for us to think about this process as stitching together a lot of important elements as opposed to fixating on one thing. And so that's what I look forward today to talking to, to sharing with this group is about the, the considerations that need to be on the table to ensure success in a medical school application. Absolutely. I was just going to say, so you had mentioned that they can start as early as high school. And I was just wondering on average, um, what are the, I guess, age or grade level of the students that you work with? That's a good question. So honestly, most of the people who I work with are typically, typically come to me in their junior or senior year of college. What I like is when I meet students who are in high school, particularly if I get a referral from the person they are working with to help them transition from high school to college. If we can have a conversation um, before they head off to college about how to spend their time. I think that that's the ideal circumstance, but in reality, people are coming to me in their junior and senior year, which in a sense is too late because there's not a lot of time necessarily at that point to course correct and have you know, develop new activities or experiences or develop a whole research project or whatnot. So the bottom line is start thinking about this as early as possible. That was one of the, one of the things that really struck me when, when I heard you uh, talk about the process. We have the, a very similar um, situation in that we really like to talk with uh, freshmen and sophomores. And even if it's just a preliminary conversation about classes to take in high school that set them up well to be competitive in college. And then we often talk to students about, you know, these are some of the classes in college that would set you up for graduate school. But it sounds like you have, and even uh, because it's become so competitive, having that long-term view and setting your ducks in a row is even more important when you're looking at medical school. So and now, now I have an appreciation for for uh, your wanting to backtrack, you know, if I could have only talked to that student two years previous. It's a very similar issue. Absolutely. And one of the messages I want to convey today is that it's not impossible to prepare for a successful medical, ap- medical school application. What's difficult is to prepare one when you have to course correct with only a year left. And so when we have the conversation early, we can demystify all of the anxieties about this process and really map out a plan that allows students to, to, to check all the boxes, if you will, and also enjoy their college experience. And I'm really acutely concerned with preparing for medical school, not um, precluding a pleasant college experience as well. Absolutely. One of the questions that I think a lot of students run across when they are thinking about medical school and they are in college or 
just thinking about college. If they're headed in the direction of uh, maybe being a physician's assistant or an RN or a doctor, they're looking at uh, basically entering a pre-med track. But there is no real pre-med track. You basically identify a a core section of, of classes, and then you have a major that you're going to graduate with and apply with that major um, when you're applying to medical school. And one of the things that I'd love to hear your opinion on, are there particular um, majors um, along with the pre-med, you know, course, course core um, that you would recommend students uh, look at when they're, they're thinking about medical school? There are, but I think what would be most effective first is to um, absolve everyone of the sort of belief that um, that you have to major in one of what often get called the hard or the natural sciences, like biology, chemistry, neuroscience, something like that, to be successful in uh, being accepted to medical school. The truth is that medicine, like many fields, uh, one success in medicine, I should say, hinges on their ability to communicate effectively. Yeah. And people who conduct interviews at medical schools are really acutely aware of this. <laughs> and the fact that schools do an interview is a reflection of the fact that they want to ensure that students have strong communication skills. Mm-hmm. So when I encourage, when I'm talking to people about the major they should be considering, I lead with that point. What's a program that is going to uh, effectively allow you to communicate and to give you strong critical reasoning skills and analytical skills. So one statistic that, or it's not a statistic, one, one reality that I like to share is that English and philosophy majors have higher success rates getting into medical school than <laughs> biology majors. So use that as sort of a reminder of the fact that you don't have to pursue just a natural sciences degree to be successful in this process. And the challenge with some of the, the, the biology, chemistry programs is that they are incredibly, incredibly rigorous. And in a lot of senses, they are designed to cull the crowd. And therefore, students are less likely to earn a high GPA, which is a very critical part of a medical school application, a high GPA. And so we really want students to choose majors in which they'll be successful and in which they'll be happy. But for medicine, that absolutely does not have to be the traditional um, science classes. Understood. And when you say science classes, you mean science majors. And I just want uh, to make sure that students understand and that I understand when you, uh, when you, if you graduate with a philosophy degree, you, you can't apply to medical school unless you have the prerequisite science core, correct? Thank you, Mark, for that question. Yes. Although the same applies to a, a biology degree student as well. The biology yes. degree is not the thing that allows the student to apply to medical school. Completing a core set of courses that are called pre-med courses what is nece- are what is necessary to uh, apply to medical school. So that list is, is easily found online, but it includes chemistry, biology, math, communications courses as well. So um, while they focus on the, the natural sciences, um, it's a broad course selection that includes psychology. And so all a person must have done to apply to medical school is A, graduated college, and B, have uh, completed all of those courses. Understood. One of, one of the things that I think 
when I talk with students and I, I'm a firm believer and, and supporter and champion of a liberal, liberal arts education. And uh, for many of the reasons that you spoke to earlier about communications and critical thinking skills. And I think that's one of the uh, misconceptions that I think a lot of students and parents have is that if you go to a liberal arts college and you get like, say, a philosophy degree, it doesn't mean that you're not, uh, that you're, you're not setting yourself up for successful entry into, co- uh, into medical school. You may actually may be setting yourself up much more successfully than if you'd gone a different route. Have you found that to be the, the case? Yes, over and over and over again. And this is why I like to talk to people as early as possible, because if I meet them in their junior or senior year, they've already selected a major and are, <laughs> yeah. are, are too far down that road, route to make a change. So really, really important point that cannot be underscored enough here is that students, most importantly, should be choosing a major that they are excited and passionate about in which they will do well. And it is certainly a bonus if that is a major that cultivates broad critical thinking, analytical, and communication skills. Yeah, that's, I, 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 if, when you're talking with students, and, and it sounds like you're a fan of the communication base as I am, um, you mentioned that there is a holistic approach when colleges look at a student's application, and basically what do they bring to the table. And the interview is a big part of that as well, so you can't hide that you can't communicate well. So would you recommend that uh, some of the classes that even, even those who have who've taken a, a, a very uh, science-oriented or science-focused uh, major, um, would you recommend to those students that they take uh, communications classes as well? Absolutely. And if not a communications class, then certainly something that provides a much more expansive perspective on health and the concept of health. So courses that I think can be excellent additions for those students who are in the sciences would be perhaps a bioethics course, but also anything in a public health department because the whole um, sort of ethos of public health is to look as far upstream at what causes people to be unhealthy and provides a really wide and comprehensive perspective on our health and where it comes from and what puts people in the pathway of disease that is outside of the pathogen itself. And so I think it's critically important to have some of those additional courses that really develop one's perspective on, on health. Um, And that very often comes up in uh, a medical school interview. You know, tell me about your, your favorite course that you took outside of the pre-med requirements. And it's great if you can have a class that's related to, to health um, that kind of develops a critical perspective on the topic. Yeah, that, that critical perspective. I, I, I think one of the things that I uh, love to work with students who are looking in the STEM, STEM direction, and that's, that's kind of where they're headed in college and probably into a profession. And one of the first conversations I have with them is, is the reality of, have you ever been around an engineer? Do you know what an engineer's life is like? and then encourage them to either seek out those opportunities to either job shadow or intern at those kind of uh, jobs so that they know really what it's like and not, not this romanticized idea. Do you have a similar conversation with students who are looking at medical school? Absolutely. In, in my head, when I'm having the conversation, I sort of think about it as the Grey's Anatomy conversation, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very um, 
sort of romanticized and dramatic and exciting um, portrayals of what medicine is. And the reality is that medicine, like almost any job in the world, is um, offers both exciting opportunities and many challenges. <laughs> and so I definitely encourage people to start as early as they can getting exposure to the field of medicine. And that means by shadowing people. But also I think even more than shadowing is just asking questions, you know, whether it's a doctor or a nurse or whoever it is to um, ask them what they like about their job, what they don't like about their job, what they would change, would they do it again? And I say this because more than half of currently practicing physicians wish they had gone into another field. And that's not to say that the field of medicine is a bad one, but maybe we're not bringing the right people into the field. And so we need to ensure that, that young, interested people really understand the field at a foundational level and understand the challenges within the field so that they can have the right motivations and they can sustain their motivation throughout medical school and a career. Yeah, understood. So one of the, uh, one of the questions that, that uh, I often have with students in one of the conversations is what I, I call the Sunday come to Jesus meeting about finances. And uh, college is getting more expensive um, and debts are increasing as uh, I think last year's average debt of a college graduate was $42,000, which is not, uh, not something to uh, take lightly. And I know that medical school is something on top of that debt as well. Um, is that a conversation that you, you uh, go into with uh, the students who are looking at medical school to start out with? Sometimes. Um, <laughs> the, the, the truth is that, you know, um, medical school is very expensive. And I think most families are actually aware of that. And, you know, I often am asked if it's possible to get scholarships or get it funded. And in my experience, that is very unusual, if not impossible. It's just a situation where a person is accumulating typically between two hundred and three hundred thousand dollars in debt for medical school itself. And as you point out, that's probably on top of a substantial debt uh, from the undergraduate experience as well. So if a student or a family is really set on their kid headed to medical school, then I do encourage them to think about potentially pursuing uh, a less expensive undergraduate option. Um, you know, and I know that there are private schools that it costs less, but certainly a state school is ideal in those situations. And as I know we'll come to in this conversation, I don't think there's any inherent value in attending an expensive school or even in attending a small school. So um, if one wants to be smart and efficient with their resources, then yes, absolutely. I think it's important to think about where you divide up those funds and preserving as many of them as possible for the really expensive part, which is still to come. Right. One of the, one of the things that we tell um, students, I think, as they, they head into college is that um, it's not necessarily, and there is no real research or evidence that supports going to a, a very expensive or elite college is going to set you up uh, for success. But we do know that uh, one of the biggest things that set you up for good graduate school and, and for future success professionally is that you get good grades, have a good experience, 
enjoy the process and basically set yourself up with as little debt as possible when you graduate. Um, are those some of the same things that when medical schools are um, evaluating a student's record and, and what they've done uh, over the last four years, are some of those same critical, you know, doing well in school as opposed to paying a lot? Is that the most important? Absolutely. So I can give a specific example there that I think will illustrate this point. I just told you that the average medical school applicant is applying to between 20 to 30 schools, which means that the schools themselves are absolutely overrun with applications and therefore need some sort of a system to filter through those applications. They just don't have the staff or the resources or the time to read thousands upon thousands of applications. And so most of them are going to have some sort of a preliminary filter through which an application has to pass. And that filter is likely going to examine GPA and test scores. So a student would be doing themselves a tremendous disservice if they were to attend the most elite and academically difficult institution they can find for the name, especially if that then causes them to earn a lower GPA than they would at a different school. So this is really a case where, although grades and test scores are not going to get someone admitted to medical school, they are probably what's going to cause someone to read your application. And so people really need to think about choosing an environment in which they are going to be successful, not an environment that has a perceived pedigree. Understood. Yeah, we, when we have students, we definitely let them know that their SAT or ACT scores along with their GPA are one of the first filters that, as you say, colleges are overrun by how many applications they have and they have to have a, a bar or a standard of first entry gate and that GPA and SAT score um, are the preliminary. And it sounds like, if, if I hear you correctly, for an MCAT, uh, for a student who gets a, a good GPA at, at maybe not a prestigious school or a, a name brand school, but who also gets really good MCAT scores, they're going to make it through that first hoop, which could be the difference. Is that right? Absolutely. And you would know better than me, but I also allow for the possibility that it's not that, and the, that one institution is less academically rigorous than another, but there may be circumstances where people have more time to develop, to dedicate to other aspects of their lives. And so potentially if a student is at an institution where they, where they have a greater sense of balance in their life, they will also be able to study for the MCAT. (laughs) (laughs) They will have time. Great point. For these, these other things as well. And I'm always telling people that to be successful in the MCAT, we're talking about several hundred hours of studying and taking a course, whether that's online or in person. So they have to be able to carve out time into an already very full schedule. And there are certain environments that are more conducive to that than others. Very good. So, we work with uh, teenagers, and you work with twenty somethings mm-hmm. and um, there is a a maturation that happens and and hope well hopefully happens and um, you have very similar conversations about preparation for school and about how to develop you know relationship skills, communication skills, critical thinking skills. If you were to identify say three things that we should be telling high school students, when we're working with them, to start working on before they get to college and they come see you, what would be three things that you would say are absolutely the best 
uses of time and energy for a high school student? Great question. Uh, I would first encourage them to, as I said earlier, get exposure to the field as broadly as they possibly can. And that means shadowing, that means talking to people, that might mean volunteering as well, you know, as a, as a greeter at a hospital, something like that. Make sure that they understand the field of medicine at a foundational level. I think second, and this is a tough one that gets easier with time, but I think Patient, there's no substitute ever for patient exposure and what it's actually like to work with a patient. And um, people are often, it's easier to get volunteer experiences that don't involve touching the patient or being in the presence of the patient. But I think seeing what it's like to manage patients and their ailments is so important because it, it's a really true grounding in, in sort of why I'm talking about these communication skills and why trust is such an important aspect of medicine and how communication and trust are so interrelated. So I think being exposed to patients is, is just a critical aspect of that. And then I think third for me would be what I would call perhaps professional, uh, professional connections or professional relationships. So in a very instrumental sense, um, students will need letters of recommendation for themselves uh, when they when they apply to medical school. So you know, thinking about that. But more importantly, our mentors are the ones who sort of keep us on track and help us process our experiences and ensure that we're making sound decisions and that um, we're doing so with our eyes wide open. So I think having um, a mentor or establishing a strong relationship with somebody who is ideally in the field and is really there to sort of talk through um, opportunities, challenges, frustrations, et cetera, is a really important thing that I have seen tremendously benefit the students who do that. So that's all, that's all very interrelated, but th I think those are the three things that I would encourage um, young people to be thinking about. Those you are great points. Uh, actually, I had a question about the second one. Um, so would it be better for a student, for example, to, so like maybe they could have the opportunity to volunteer at a hospital, but maybe they're just like a runner running errands or delivering blood or whatever, or they could volunteer at say a nursing home where they could actually interact more with the patients. Are you saying the latter is better because they are actually getting more, getting to interact with patients versus just doing things around the hospital? Great question. While I wouldn't discourage the hospital runner job, I do think the latter is far better. And I think that kind of for two reasons, honestly. First is that there's no better way to, to confirm or refute your interest in the field of medicine than to actually be managing and dealing with patients. And you may find that you love the science of medicine and you have a tremendous distaste for dealing with people and their ailments. <laughs> okay. uh -huh. it's better to know that sooner. <laughs> but then here's the second half of my response that I think is equally important, which is that the medical school application process requires an incredible amount of reflection about the experiences you've had in health care. And the best reflections to offer are those that involve patients and communication with patients and witnessing their, their challenges, etc. So having a register of experiences and stories to tell as part of this process is is very, very important. And that's not just in the interview, um, the in-person interview, that's in the personal statement that gets submitted, and then also especially in the secondary application process. 
which um, requires individualized applications to the schools that a student applies to, they're almost always having to reflect on an experience with patients and what they learned with patients. So there's a very um, kind of tactical reason to get engaged with patients as well. So one of the, what you, you talk about uh, the relationship building process. I know Anna and I talk with our students about when you're um, in school, in high school, um, one of the things that you need to be cognizant of and one of the things you need to practice is building relationships and forming relationships. And one of the things that stems from that is the ability to uh, have a, a really good set of recommendation letters when you're applying to college. Um, I would think that <laughs> when, when medical school, if you're applying to 20 or 30 medical schools and they're looking for people who can communicate well, I would think that those letters of recommendation and building those relationships in college with people over time is even more critical. Do you find that that's one of the like top things that schools are looking for? I do. And I think that sometimes students underestimate the importance of a strong and personalized letter. They get the need for a letter, but I think they believe that having the letter sort of checks the box. <laughs> and one of the talking points I'm always sharing is that in my humble opinion, a, um, a very generic letter is almost worse than having no letter at all because it, it doesn't offer any depth. It doesn't give the applicant more dimension. And it looks like they were just out begging for somebody to check the box as opposed to write a really strong letter. And I am, um, very targeted in how I encourage students, or I encourage students, I should say, to be very targeted in how they ask for letters, which is to sort of enumerate their strengths for the person that they're requesting write the letter so that they have those on hand, and then also share some specific examples of those strengths, and the letter writer is likely to include those examples. And in, throughout this whole process, I'm always emphasizing the importance of examples, examples, examples yep. in, in developing the the claims you are making about yourself. So a, a strong letter is, or a strong set of letters, excuse me, is absolutely vital. And I think that when the perfect candidate isn't successful in an application, my intuition is that oftentimes that relates to the letters that they underestimated the importance of them, or they didn't choose a strong letter writer or that letter writer didn't make the links appropriately or didn't use examples that were really compelling. Absolutely, I've, I've uh, been lucky enough to run internships and scholarship programs and read many thousands of recommendation letters. And I, I have to comment, you're, you're, you're uh, identifying that a generic or a bland, lukewarm uh, recommendation letter can actually be worse than no re recommendation at all. I can definitely attest to that, that I've seen those recommendations, like you say, were written to check off a box as opposed to somebody who was truly a champion and, and a supporting agent of, uh, of a student, which makes all the difference. And, in that, and I don't think students understand that can make the difference of other weaknesses in an application because it, it provides a very different set of uh, support. And, and like you say, it's evidence that uh, this student has uh, taken the time to build relationships, which is ever more important. That's what we're finding. Absolutely. And I think the way I explain that, the point that you've just made to students is in theory, everyone who's applying to medical school is 
qualified via the numbers. And so it's about the other ways in which they distinguish themselves. And that can be the personal statement and that can be the supplementary essays as well. But the volume really gets turned up on their application if they have a strong letter. Yep. So one of the things that we, when we talk with students about prices of colleges, we have a, a pretty broad spectrum of the, the price tag that's associated with four years of college. That can be everywhere from community college on up to an elite college, you know, and that can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. But if I understand correctly, medical schools don't have that huge spectrum. There is probably a, a, a you know, a, a, a various range of, of costs that are um, included with, with medical school. But is there kind of a range that you let students know how much medical school will actually cost? Absolutely. And while I'm no expert in this, from what I've read and what I've understood from my clients, all in at a private school, so that includes the tuition and the living expenses and whatnot, it's oftentimes between two hundred dollars and $300,000, whereas all in at a public school, you're talking at closer to two hundred to $225,000. Okay. Yeah, that's a, a very different. And do you, do you also find that uh, in, in those uh, students that you've worked with who have gone through the process, um, is there a huge difference between the two types of, of uh, be it a state school or a private school in the kind of education that they receive when they walk into the world of medicine? No. I, perhaps there's a difference in the kind of education, but certainly not necessarily the quality of education. Schools do deliver information through various learning modalities. And um, I think to the extent that students are able to make a choice in selecting a medical school, they want to think about the environment in which they learn best. Is it small classes? Is it didactic? Is it um, more, you know, problem-based learning? Um, where is the school located? Is it somewhere that they would want to live and could see themselves being happy and whatnot? But the fact is that if you go to medical school in this country, you will have tremendous opportunity to have a thriving, successful career. And I'm, I always find myself soothing both the students, but more so their parents about residency placement after graduating from medical school and I have never ever encountered somebody who didn't didn't place and they typically place well there are there are plenty of opportunities for people who who attend one of the American medical schools yeah afterwards so you and this is one of uh, Anna and I were talking about this and and one of the questions that she posed was was uh, you mentioned that as much as 50 percent of those students who apply to medical school are not going to get a placement. Um, so what happens, uh, worst case scenario, you don't, go, you don't get in the first time. Um, what are some of the things that uh, you find are the most important that students attend to um, to make sure that they get in the second uh, time that they apply? First of all, don't be discouraged. <laughs> Simply <laughs> applying a second time is really received well by the school. So you should apply again to the same schools where you applied unless you learn there's some specific reason you should not. I see over and over again, students are accepted to the schools that they've applied one or two times, applied to one or two times previously. So uh, we need to dispel the notion that being a, uh, rejected from a school once means that they will never accept the student. The fact is the student, the schools really like to see that level of persistence and commitment to the program. 
If somebody is unsuccessful, we don't assume that there is something catastrophically wrong with the application, but we can look at that application holistically and think about where there are any holes and gaps. So for instance, a strong student knows that they should have some research experience, <clears throat> but maybe in the gap year that they're now going to be forced to have by not getting accepted, they could write a paper and submit it for publication that enhances the research experience. Maybe they have been shadowing or sort of working peripherally in a clinic. Perhaps for the coming year, they should get a job as a scribe. Um, we might notice that they have a lot of patient experience, but they don't have much experience with underserved groups, which is something that schools really tend to value. So maybe we'll choose to use that year uh, to focus on connecting with underserved or marginalized communities. So there's not uh, sort of a single answer for people who aren't accepted in on their first try. Rather, they need to examine their applications as holistically as possible and think about where there might be holes or deficits and try to fill them and then very clearly communicate how they filled those, those holes in the next round of applications. So is it very common that there are students that, you know, apply a second or third time even? <laughs> you went to the same point, or third? <laughs> <laughs> it's very common. And it's sad because it, the application process is expensive. It's very stressful for the students and their families, but it happens all the time. Um, if if sixty percent of people are being rejected, uh, that means that a lot of them have to reapply. Um, I have worked with a, a few students lately who were accepted to the University of Washington, which is the top medical school for primary care in the country, on their third try. Wow! Um, and so. It's very common to be accepted. And this, in my experience, applies well beyond uh, becoming a physician to all of the health sciences. It can just take a few tries. And that the school, it actually, on the third try, you have the best chance in the sense that the school will recognize your persistence and see that you're really committed to becoming a clinician at, at, at that particular institution. Great. I hadn't even thought of that. One of, the, one of the things that as you are taking your gap year, there's another entire cohort of graduates who are going to be applying to medical school. And if you're on your third attempt, that means that there is two cohorts of college graduates that are now uh, also applying for those same spots. And that, that uh, only, only makes the numbers even larger. I hadn't even yeah. thought of it. That's I will say though that it's important to remember that schools value experiences. Tremendous. Yep. And so the, one of the things you get by not, being accepted into medical school the first or the second try is an additional year or two years to just gather experiences and gather exposure to the field. So by being forced to spend more time, you're also being forced to develop your resume and, and, and have additional experiences. So it's it, the sort of, there's a compound effect of reapplying that um, kind of goes unstated, but is really important. Great. And I guess another question would be, um, so you had mentioned that it's not crazy or unheard of to apply for 30 medical schools in the process. Um, so Mark and I often talk about fit and things like that, but what are some factors that they should consider or is like 30 everything under the sun? Yeah, I wish that this process was refined enough to allow people to really consider fit for mm -hmm. themselves. 
but I would be, it would be disingenuous of me to say that that's the reality of the situation. When you're needing to apply to 30 schools, you're creating a list off, based off of a lot of factors. First and, for, excuse me, first and foremost is the fact that most of the schools on the list need to be private schools. So state schools are designed for residents of that state. So an applicant should be applying to schools, their own state schools. But then beyond that, they're not likely to be successful at other state schools because of what state schools are intended to do. So the list should be predominantly private schools. And then I'm always encouraging students to really apply where their numbers are competitive. The whole reach concept, I do not see work when it comes to that <laughs> at all. And same actually goes for applying to schools where the students are kind of above the average or perhaps overqualified, that the schools know that they're not likely to choose to attend an institution that, where the, the, the averages are, are less than what the student has. So for me, the most important point is to identify those schools where students are very solidly competitive, where their grades are right and their GPA, or excuse me, where their GPA and test scores are right in range. And then to think about some factors like where they want to live, what the teaching style is, or maybe especially what the focus of the school is. I do think that's one very important way to call the list meaningfully. If you're interested in primary care, there are great lists of primary care programs. If you're interested in research, find that list and apply to those schools and just really make the point in the personal statement that research is top of the agenda for you. And that should help your chances. So there's not, I don't, I offer no recipe here or sort of science to this process. And I know that's frustrating, but those are some of the factors that I consider. I hadn't even thought of the, uh, the situation, like like you said, if if you're applying to your your state school uh, for medical school, your chances are 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 the best. But when you go out of state, um, just based on the mission and the charter of of a state school, especially medical schools, your chances are actually much less as you are an, a non-state resident. That uh, and applying to to the private schools for medical school are your best shot when you. Um, leave the state. Yeah, absolutely. And so I would make two points there. One is that these poor private schools are inundated with applications as a result of this reality. So um, one comes to understand why they're, they're slow to respond and why they reject so many students. But then the other related point that I'm always having to make to families, especially those who come to me after an unsuccessful application when a student has been unsuccessful, I ask to see the school list. And it's often 50%, 75% state schools. And they're choosing those schools because they have tremendously strong reputations that, you know, that like Michigan and UCLA and University of Washington, there's this, there's this perceived and real quality of that education. And students want that without considering the fact that they're very unlikely to be accepted by virtue of the mission of, of the program. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. I, I, I would be curious to know um, how many of the the students that you work with uh, basically have applied once on their own, been unsuccessful, and then come to you, uh, and you're having to do triage on something that uh, you basically are looking at at looking for gaps and and. Uh, discrepancies in in uh, experience that they might be bringing to the table in their application is that a predominant number of, of 
of students that you work with are, are there basically coming after they've been unsuccessful? I would say it's about a third, but there's something very fascinating about the demographic that comes to me having been unsuccessful. They tend to be the students who went to the most prestigious universities. And I think what happens is that a student attends a very prestigious university, it sort of causes them to puff their chest a little and, and, and think they are exceptional because they got an exceptional undergraduate education and they're not very mindful of all of the considerations that need to be evaluated when it comes to a medical school application and don't really attend to that. They think that the pedigree of the undergraduate institution is the thing that will land them admission to a program. And so they're applying to the Vanderbilts and the Michigans and the, uh, the Yales and whatnot for medical school. And it's remarkable how consistent that profile is of the student who comes to me having been unsuccessful the first round. How so interesting. Humility is a good thing to practice, yes. Yeah, <laughs> through and through. <laughs> always. And, and it's not always cultivated at certain schools, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes, yes. Um, one of the things that uh, I think all students need to, I think I ask students, why are you going to college? And, and have them focus on that because it makes the rest of the college application uh, so much easier. And often it's going to be much more successful if they know why they are personally headed in that direction. Um, how many of the students you work with have really taken the time to reflect and, and, and instead of just being on the, the merry-go-round of I'm real good at science, I've been told I am real good in these areas and therefore I should be a doctor and I'm on this merry-go-round and I've really never asked myself, should I be a doctor? How often do you have students who it's clearly they haven't asked themselves those questions? It happens all the time. And it's, I mean, I feel like I have to have this conversation with frustrating frequency, I suppose. And there, I approach this with a bit of a, with a bit of humor um, <laughs> because I have to. So when I, when I ask students why they want to become doctors, 90% of them tell me that it's because they're good at science and they like helping people. <laughs> and I've grown to just want to stick a fork in my eye when I hear that um, response. It's great that you are good at science and like helping people. And if you are good at science and like helping people, there are a thousand things you can do with, with, <laughs> with that pairing. In the health sciences, you can also be a nurse, you can be a physical therapist, you can be uh, a DO, for instance, but you, we also need people in public health who are good scientists and like helping people. We need social workers who have that skill set, et cetera. So I have to push back really hard and say, okay, then, what is it? Can you defend for me why you need to be a physician with those skills? And that's where students typically really fall apart and where it's a really instructive learning exercise because. My goal is to deter those people who are just not a good fit for medicine and for those who are a good fit for medicine to really understand why they are so they can articulate the sort of value add they bring to the field. So um, it's something I spend a lot of time dealing with and it's remarkable how much difficulty students have articulating why they should be a physician, why they want to be a physician. Well, one of, one of the things that you brought this up just now in that uh, for alternatives of MD, um, here in the Seattle area, uh, osteopathic physicians, DOs, are really 
well-received. A lot of people don't realize that they're seeing as their primary care doctor, they're seeing a DO instead of an MD. So how often do you explore uh, osteopathic schools um, as a route, um, either in conjunction with looking at, at traditional medical schools? Um, how often do you have that conversation with students that these are, are medical schools that uh, are often not pursued with the same uh, rigor, um, but they may be an alternative into medicine? Is that a common conversation? It is a common conversation. And while DO schools are very competitive, they are less competitive than MD schools. For me, I, I, the kind of the, perhaps the more important conversation is to remind people and to, as early on as possible that at least in the American system, our healthcare, uh, our healthcare system is being restructured around um, primary care providers not being uh, MDs. So a physician assistant, an osteopathic doctor, or a nurse practitioner are all capable of providing excellent primary care. And the, those are fields where there's typically, there, or there's often less stress and more time with the patient and less bureaucracy and whatnot. So I try to orient students around all of those fields in which the, the sort of competitive nature is a little less, but also they might make them happier as practicing providers someday. They might actually enjoy the career more and they might get to spend more time with patients, which is hopefully the goal. Well, that's just crazy talk right there, I tell you. <laughs> Where's the focus? Where's the intensity? Anyway, <laughs> happy doctor. That's a novel concept. Right. Um, when you talked about uh, the holistic approach of uh, what college or what um, medical schools are looking for, we often find that colleges are now very cognizant of the fact that a student who has a a, a worldview and, and a balance is going to be more successful in college and they're going to graduate more commonly on time and they're going to be more successful um, when they head out into the world of the profession they choose. Um, one of the things I think that's probably moving into medical schools as well, are there things that uh, you find are often forgotten uh, by those students in college who are applying to medical school where they don't have a balance, where they, all they've done is they've cranked through the books, they've got an incredible MCAT score, but there are things along the way that they've neglected. Are there common things that you uh, would tell a, a college student to make sure they don't neglect? So I don't know about sort of commonalities I could define and my answer, I suppose, more so is grounded in my concern that I want happy students and happy doctors and people who enjoy <laughs> their lives. Um, but I do see a f what, I, what I encounter is people who have already achieved burnout at the end of the undergraduate experience. Wow. And I am anxious for them entering four years of medical school, followed by residency, oftentimes followed by a fellowship or a postdoc or something like that. <laughs> and so we really have to, if we can at all, sort of mitigate against that and help people achieve balance and understand what balance looks like and that success in this process is predicated on having outlets for our anxieties and frustrations and something happening in life outside of academics and interestingly, I think when I do practice interviews with people who 
don't really have any interest or experience outside of school or preparing for medicine, they come across as exceptionally flat people and they don't excite me necessarily. So there's just value in being a well-rounded person because you look like a well-rounded person, which is what these programs want to see. Medical schools understand the attrition rate and they understand how difficult and demanding the curriculum is. And they want to ensure that people have a kind of a robust enough support network and a strong sense of balance in their life such that they are going to be able to navigate the inevitable frustrations, failures, anxieties that come with medical school. For sure. Yeah, with with medical school, as long as it is, there is going to be ups and downs in life. And I, I think even more important is that support system that uh, students have along that journey, for sure. Agreed. So um, one of the things that uh, goes along with, um, I guess, balance, um, we have students who, when they apply to college, they have extracurricular list of things that they've done that are in addition to the academics. When, when medical schools look at, at transcripts and, and applications, are there extracurriculars that are looked at uh, more favorably than others um, that balance out uh, and show that holistic uh, approach and that balance in life uh, that they look for? I think so. I guess I would, I would preface this, though, by saying that so an applicant to medical school can describe up in narrative style up to 15 experiences that they have had that relate to medicine. And in my experience, something can almost always be related to medicine. <laughs> Even if it's not clinical in nature, it can be a leadership experience, it can be a communication experience, it can be a teaching experience. And so people, again, should be doing things that they're excited about and, and enjoy, you know, that, that, that matters for the experience and, and will hopefully sort of allow them to not get burned out. But I think primarily the extracurriculars need to be in a few specific domains. <clears throat> First is having research experience. Um, that means that can mean any number of things, but it means research conducted outside of the, uh, a paper for a class. So that could be working in a lab, but it could also be doing interviews with PTSD patients or um, any, you know, working in an, with animals, any number of things that get students exposed to the research process and how we use research to inform uh, all human knowledge effectively, or, or hopefully, if you will. Um, and then next, I would say, whether it's paid or volunteer, having experiences that get students exposed to health systems at a foundational level. People are always very concerned about the prestige of an experience, and I try to dispel that notion right away. You can learn a lot from um, you know, working in a lab or from being a scribe or from... Um, even being the sort of aid in the hospital, you, because your job there is to observe how the system works, what goes well, what doesn't go well, what you would change, what, and also to hone your interest within the field as well. So those, those paid or volunteer experiences with, in the clinical environment are really important. And then also in, in medicine, hopefully the job is to care for all people. And especially in the United States, there are a lot of people who are underserved or who don't get care, or who are tough to reach. And whatever the mechanism is to come to understand what it is that prevents people from being healthy in this country, that's very, very important. And so having some access to underserved people or communities or marginal communities 
is really important in having a robust perspective on the field of medicine, where it needs to go, how it can be improved and whatnot. Understood. I had to smile when you, when you mentioned uh, almost everything can apply back to uh, medicine. I, I often, I don't know if, you, if I kid or I tease students um, when, whenever they're looking for something uh, to do, I say, make sure that you're practicing your clown skills. And uh, just recently I was in the, in the hospital and I looked over my shoulder and I saw one of the, um, one of the doctors was actually juggling. And um, in the back of my mind, I went like, well, maybe I should push the clown skills a little bit harder. <laughs> maybe that's part of, the, uh, part of the balance, as it were. So, Absolutely. So, Anna, I've learned a ton. Have you got any uh, uh, questions for Todd as we uh, wrap up? I think we have covered so much today. Thank you so much for your time, Todd. What would be like one like critical, like I think we've shared so much great advice, but what would you say would really hit home for our audience that is serious about medical school? Great question. And uh, I want to revert back to the balance point not only achieving balance in one's life, but having a multidimensional balanced application and recognizing that we are wholes composed of a whole bunch of little parts as opposed to any one of those parts composing the whole. And I think that's really the shortcoming of a lot of people when they think about preparing for medical school or when they actually do prepare for medical school is not thinking about themselves as a comprehensive package. And so I really encourage people to sort of think through the domains in which you can and should prepare for medicine and, and map that out for yourself and hopefully therefore avert any difficult conversations or realizations down the road and also ensure that you feel balanced in control and not overcome with anxiety in this process. Wonderful, wonderful feedback. Thanks so much, Todd. My um, pleasure. Thank we're you for gonna we're going to grab your contact information and stick it up on the site um, so that everyone, um, if you're interested and need help and are in the Seattle area, or if Todd, you work with people outside of the Seattle area, can get in touch with you. Great. Thank you so well, much. And I'm going to try to figure out how I'm going to get my head around 30 applications for medical school. That's, that's mind boggling. Yeah. And imagine being in my shoes and reading, <laughs> reading 30 secondary <laughs> applications. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks so much again, guys. Have a great day. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for listening to the Coast to Coast College Admissions Podcast, where we make getting into college easy and fun. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and subscribe to get updated each week when we release a new episode. Also, for more helpful college admissions information, visit our website at www.c2ccollegepodcast.com. 